Hi listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today, I am delighted to bring you another conversation between Arden Kaler and our CEO, Ben Todd. Ben has been thinking a lot about effective altruism lately, uh, including what it really is, uh, how it should be defined, uh, and, and how it's framed. We think effective altruism is widely misunderstood, uh, sometimes even by its strong supporters. Uh, and this episode is our latest attempt to try to clarify the views of the effective altruism community. We've also recently released an article on misconceptions about effective altruism uh, based on some work by Will McCaskill, which you can find linked in the show notes. This is another 80k team chat, which means that it's all very off the cuff compared to our regular episodes. Uh, and even though he's our CEO, the things Ben says here aren't official 80,000 hours positions uh, or anything like that. Arden and Ben first tackle common misconceptions about effective altruism, uh, like how it isn't just about donating money to fight poverty, uh, and how it doesn't necessarily include or, or imply a moral obligation to, to help other people. They then move on to clarifying how Ben defines the, the central claim of effective altruism, um, and how to put together a potentially fairly robust argument for effective altruism based on three premises. Then they discuss how you might object to the actual core idea uh, of effective altruism uh, by denying one of uh, those three premises that they've laid out. They don't get to covering uh, the many uh, possibly good objections that you could have to how effective altruism uh, operates in practice. Uh, that'll have to wait for another episode, I guess. Finally, they cover a few ideas on how to talk about uh, and communicate effective altruism, uh, given all of the above. Given that we're all working in the same office, uh, at least until lockdown returns, uh, it's relatively easy to uh, record conversations between two 80,000 hours team members uh, like this. So if you enjoy these types of bonus episodes, uh, let us know by emailing us at podcast at 80,000hours.org, and we might make them uh, more of a regular feature. All right, without further ado, I bring you Arden and Ben. Hi, listeners. I'm Arden. I'm a researcher at 80,000 Hours. Hi, and I'm Ben, uh, CEO of 80,000 Hours. And today we are going to talk about effective altruism, how it's framed, what it is, and how people misunderstand it. So I know you've been thinking a bunch about effective altruism recently. 80,000 Hours is an organization in the effective altruism community. So why has this been on your mind? Yeah, so effective altruism has been around since about 2012. And yeah, I think something that just keeps keeps bugging me is it seems like we haven't done a great job of explaining what effective altruism is to the wider world. Well, now is, now is your <laughs> chance, Ben. Uh, what, what would you say yeah, effective altruism so is and how yeah. have we been going wrong? Yeah, so I'm excited to talk about this. I mean, an interesting recent example was like Sam Harris interviewed Toby Ord on, on his podcast. And when he defined effective altruism, he defined it as taking the actions that most help the people who are most in need alive today. And so his definition explicitly ruled out helping future generations. And then for that reason, maybe ruling out working on existential risks. Even though Toby Ord is on his podcast, who's one of the creators of effective altruism and is also just written a book about existential risks. So where did he get this idea? do you think? Yeah. So I think also maybe just also say, like, I think Sam Harris is quite a representative example. And it's not so much that people within the community misunderstand it, but even very adjacent people often misunderstand it. And of which like Sam Harris is an example, but there's many others. And yeah, as to where they get the idea, well, I'm, I'm not sure to some degree, but a couple of, a couple of thoughts. One is that effective altruism is a very abstract idea. So the way I see it is I see effective altruism as trying to seek the very best ways to have a positive impact or to 
to contribute to the common good is how I like to frame it. And a lot of people, it's like, that's quite, yeah, that's quite hard to grasp in abstract what exactly that's saying. So instead, people end up focusing on like particular things that people discuss in effective altruism. Yeah, particular ways of doing good, I mean. And in particular, the ones that kind of like are most grabbing and memorable. And so much of effective altruism, like in the past, it really focused a lot on donating to global health charities and how that can save a life for like, this is how it's surprisingly easy to save a life and uh, those kinds of things. And if I had to like sum up the misunderstandings with effective altruism in one line, it's just that people think that effective altruism is just about the claim that we should kind of donate money to evidence-backed interventions that help the world's poorest people. Yeah, I wonder if this is partly because so many social movements are about something more specific. It's kind of weird to have a social movement that's about something as abstract as try to figure out and then do whatever it is actually is doing the most good in the world. Yeah, totally. I think that's one that's one reason. And yeah, just just before we like start kind of go more into like where this came from, I want to say it's like where this is most pronounced is if you look at external coverage of effective altruism. So basically like people who aren't kind of in the community writing about the community. So like there's all these critiques of effective altruism like on the Boston Review of Books and some academic papers about it and they pretty much all focus on why it's not a good idea to focus on evidence-backed global health charities as a way of doing good. And so they're all replying to that specific way of doing good than the broad concept, the actual underlying concept. If you want more details on this, Will McCaskill wrote this paper, Defining Effective Altruism, which has a section on common misconceptions, which we just released an extract of onto the blog. And on there, it lists lots of um, other coverage of effective altruism and, and how it's actually responding to the misconception rather than the core idea. So I guess it seems like there's at least two differences between this definition of effective altruism that Sam Harris offered and that people seem to work with and the one that you gave, and maybe more, but seems like two that jump out are, one, it's not just about donating money. You know, at 80,000 hours, we talk a lot about doing good with your career. And so, you know, or really any other sort of resource that you have at your disposal seems like it can be included. Yeah, it could potentially be advocacy or political campaigns as well as like your job and as well as your money. Right. And then the other difference, which you were, you know, pointing to more before is, or, you know, when you were talking about existential risk is that it seems like effective altruists understand themselves as wanting to work on a lot of different kinds of issue and not just global health. Are there? Yeah, exactly. And when, when we look at like where money is actually being spent in the community, now it's maybe something like 30% on global health, but actually therefore the majority is on other issues, which is like a lot to do with accidental risks. And then there's also like global priorities research, community building, and then reducing factory farming. And, and also actually, you know, a lot of other issues like criminal justice reform, scientific research. Yeah. And actually just pausing on global priorities research for a second, that's so research into what in fact is the best way to do good. And I guess that's another thing that's sort of sidelined in Sam Harris's definition. And sorry to Sam, I feel like now we're like using him as a shorthand. <laughs> yeah, but... no, and it, I mean, his definition was like actually still pretty accurate. It was just, it was just different about who the beneficiaries should be. Ah, okay, um, yeah. Whereas like often people confuse not only whether it's about global poverty is the thing we've just been talking about but also whether it should be just donating or helping people in general and then the other the third aspect where the misunderstandings are is whether it's just about evidence-backed interventions like especially those tested with randomized control trials like malaria nets or whether there could be some broader notion of what to focus on and actually again on that now if we look at like where most resources are going 
I think more resources are going on what open philanthropy calls a hips-based approach to doing good rather than an evidence-backed one. So what does that mean? What's that distinction? Yeah, so in the evidence-backed one, basically what you do is you try and test lots of things with randomized control trials and then do the things that seem best based on those tests. Whereas a hits-based one is a bit more like kind of investing in startups. Like the idea is most of the value, most of the impact will come from a small number of things that are like really unusually good. And your goal as a person aiming to have an impact is to like identify those amazing opportunities through whatever means are best and like focus on those. And yeah, it would often end up focusing on like high risk, high reward things, which maybe don't have very much evidence behind them, but where you have some qualitative arguments or a back of the envelope calculation, or you've used like, you've looked at something that's very important, neglected and tractable that seems good based on that, rather than things that are like very measurable. So just to clarify with high risk, high reward, I think sometimes when people hear that phrase, they they imagine something that could cause a lot of harm or a lot of benefit, but I actually feel like many people in the effective altruism community are like very anti taking risks of that kind, things yes. that could cause a lot of harm. So yeah, I know. So yeah, I wasn't trying to point to that distinction. I was just meaning things where like, maybe it could be amazing, but it's like maybe only 10% chance of it being amazing. Where the other 90% is like, it's neutral or yeah. like maybe a little bit good or something, but not not incredible. Yes. So I guess returning briefly to the question of sort of where people could have gotten this idea One thing that strikes me is that it seems like for each of these elements, it is like very related to something that is very important to effective altruism. So like the evidence-backed thing, well, it seems like people are moving toward a hits-based approach sometimes, but the emphasis on evidence-backed interventions does come from the place of being like, no, actually do the thing that makes the actual difference, as opposed to something that seems like a good idea from the armchair, but you haven't really thought very much about it or something Mm. like that. Does that seem right? Yes, though I would say the things that are like most interesting and important about effective altruism, at least from my perspective, are these insights like long-termism, maybe accentual risk is an important thing, like movement building, global priorities research, the now versus later debate. What's um, that? Just how should you trade? Like if I can invest resources now and have more in the future, when is that better than just trying to help right away, trying to have an impact right away? I think like these kinds of big picture questions are some of the things where effective altruism has really added the most compared to what's already out there and have really big impact on like what you should focus on. And all those kinds of things are like, it's more about, I would say, kind of using like philosophical reasoning rather than using evidence. And then on the, on the other side, like evidence-backed charity or evidence-backed development is already a thing. That's the randomisters. And so that's like, not actually a novel contribution of effective altruism. And so by saying like using evidence, it's like getting people to think of like the stuff that's maybe not the most interesting and also not the most novel compared to what's already out there. So I guess just to push back a little bit, I mean, you know, we're talking about like what is effective altruism? In some sense, it's like, you know, who are we to like make up the definitions or whatever? But I guess, you know, rephrasing it in terms of what what really feels like the most distinctive and valuable thing to this community I, you know, might be tempted to say that it's really distinctively valuable that people in the effective altruism community sort of say, like, there's a a sort of relentless focus on whether this is, in fact, the best use of your resources. Yes. And that sort of, like, push to constantly be asking yourself, okay, but is this investment actually better than, for instance, saving a life in expectation by donating to the Against Malaria Foundation, which is, like, pretty good at saving lives, is, like, maybe that's the core contribution. And even though there's this evidence-backed, or I guess the relationship to evidence-backed 
is that maybe if you're really focused on that, then you, you're really sort of obsessed with figuring out whether the thing you're doing is in fact going to have the effect you think it will, in which case you search really hard for evidence. And if you're not obsessed with that, then you maybe don't search so hard for evidence. And that's sort of the, the way it's connected to. Yeah, so I, I might frame it as people interested in effect altruism want to seek out the best evidence that is available. But then that will like often be a philosophical argument or like lots of experts think this is a good idea or some like thing that would not in common sense, normal language that wouldn't be thought of as like normally when people talk about what's the evidence for this, they're referring to some kind of more objective thing. And so empirical. Yeah, more empirical. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, there is obviously a sense in which yes, of course, we're trying to use like whatever evidence is available and have an evidence based decision making. But we're thinking of evidence in this broader way than what is most commonly used. And so like really foregrounding being evidence-backed is like giving people a bit of a red herring. Okay. I wonder if a better term could be something like best justified or something where it's like, it could be by empirical evidence, but it could be by a philosophical argument, but you're like really seeking that justification. Yeah. I mean, the kind of standard phrase is like using evidence and careful reasoning. And I think, yeah, careful reasoning is also a pretty reasonable phrase to sum things up with. But yeah, the, the problem is that the evidence-backed thing has been like so much more foregrounded in the past that people like just only focus on that element. And then on the idea of, you know, oftentimes people equate effective altruism with trying to, you know, do these global health interventions. I guess the sort of kernel of truth in that is that it is, you know, one of the big insights of effective altruism, and maybe it sounds a little bit basic, but is that your money can go way farther in some areas than others. And one of the sort of first ways that people made that concrete was thinking oftentimes you can do a lot more good in a poorer country or for people who are less privileged than for, you know, doing something in the US or or the UK. Yeah. And that's a really powerful insight. You can actually do like way more good than you might think. And yeah, I mean, and, and as also I mentioned maybe something like a third or 40% of the like money that's being spent in an effect altruism style is being spent on global health. Among people who are changing their careers in an effective altruism way, I would say it's probably more like 10%. So it's a bit lower than the money, which is because give well is such a big factor. But it is still like a major thing that people are working on. So yeah, there is like a huge kernel of truth in right, right. Um, this. I, yeah, I, I guess, well, I, I wanted to talk a bit more about like how the misconception, how, how that idea got going. Yeah, okay. Yeah, please um, do. So one, one big thing to bear in mind is, yeah, most people who've engaged with effective altruism haven't read one of the primary sources like effectaltruism.org or even doing it better, but rather they've read some media coverage about effectaltruism because that, that media coverage has millions of views. So it's, it's many more views than have, had the, have viewed the like original sources. And all that media coverage is based on basically the kind of media campaigns that were done between 2011 and roughly 2016 around giving what we can, give well, doing good better. And also Peter Singer, like giving his TED talk and writing his, his book on effective altruism. And all four of those sources really focus a lot on the drowning pond, giving... To, the drowning child. Sorry, the, sorry. So this yeah, is yeah. a Peter Singer uh, <laughs> yes. thought experiment. You can listen to our podcast with Singer. I mean, if you haven't heard of it already. Yes. Well, so actually, it's mainly Peter Singer who does the drowning child example. But then all the others, they talk, they're talking a lot about evidence-backed global poverty charities. So there are these media campaigns and there's loads of people wrote about that. And then when you kind of stumble across effect altruism online, you mainly stumble across one of those media articles about, about those things. So that's another big reason why that's, that's happened. Just maybe also just a, another point is like Peter Singer is still much more famous than effect altruism. If you kind of look at how much search traffic both terms get, I think Peter Singer is about 10 times the search traffic. And Peter Singer focuses much more on 
global health, factory farming, and climate change, and focuses less on hits-based giving, global catastrophic risks, these like, yeah, like some some of the other things that we talk about on the podcast. So another thing that I think talking about Peter Singer makes salient is it seems like oftentimes effective altruism is also identified with or associated with in some way a certain demanding moral theory. So it's not so much about what you should do to do good or, well, okay, it, I think everyone knows it is about that. But oftentimes people think there's a second part, which is that also you should be like spending a larger amount of your resources to make a difference. Yeah. What do you think of that sort of aspect of the public image of effective altruism? Yeah. I mean, I think that's another misconception in a way. And so like Will wrote this philosophy paper called Defining Effective Altruism. And in that he argues that we shouldn't define it as having a moral obligation component and one of his arguments for that is just like he polled lots of people in the community about whether they think it should be defined that way. And on average, people agreed it shouldn't. So if we want to define effective altruism in, in the way that the people who actually practice it think it should be defined, which seems like a pretty reasonable way of doing it, like they would all say, no, it's not about the moral obligation to give. Rather, it's about supposing you do want to give some time or money or some other resource to help others. How can you do that most effectively? And it's like, well, yeah, it's encouraging you to really focus on finding like the very best ways to use that those resources. So you didn't use normative language in the definition that you just gave or like moral language, but I might have thought that effective altruism does have a sort of moral claim, even if it's limited. Yeah, I don't think I was around to take this poll, but I might have thought that it was something like, okay, with the resources that you are going to dedicate to helping others, you actually Mm. should dedicate them to the ways that you think are going to do the most good and not just... So like there is a should in there, but it's just limited to the resources you are in fact already planning, planning. to contribute to the, yeah. com- to the common good. Yes. No, I'm I'm like more okay with that being in there. I think later we can get onto like how I would actually want to define the claim of effective altruism. But yeah, the, the key thing is that a lot of people go around and they're like, well, I can never be an effective altruist because like I don't want to give all my money to charity. And there are people who are saying that we have to give all our money away. But that's not what we're saying. We're more saying like, supposing you want to give some away, let's figure out the best ways to do it. And again, the reason for that is just like, that's how people think we should define it. I think another reason is that's like a much more interesting insight because there's already been thousands of years of moral philosophy about the question of what are our obligations to others? And we're not going to be able to go and settle that debate. But I think we do have something much more unusual to add about the question of, well, just this making this point that some ways of helping others is like way better than others. So, okay, just to push back a little on this, and I know that I'm going up against the crowd here, and that's maybe (laughs) like means that, you know, since we're just talking about how to define a social movement that consists in its members, maybe that doesn't make sense. (laughs) But like, so here's one way that the insights of effective altruism seem related to this question about moral obligations. So one of the things that the effective altruism movement has emphasized is that some ways of helping others don't just do a little bit more good, but they actually do a lot more good, right? And in fact, you can do, you know, there are these amazing opportunities to help others that maybe people weren't really aware of or they're used to, you know, people are more skeptical that you can actually make other people better off. And so it seems like in the situation where some ways of helping others, you know, do that a lot more, you know, it seems kind of commonsensical that you might have a stronger obligation to then you know, use your resources to help others since it can, they can do so much rather than how it would be in a world where you can't really help others that much with your resources. So that's one way in which it seems like connected. Yeah, no, that there's definitely a close connection. And 
many people, in fact, after like learning about effect altruism, have decided to focus more on helping others because, yeah, like if one of your goals becomes like easier than you thought, then it makes sense to focus more on that. But yeah, I just don't want to kind of have that as part of the like defining or or most maybe most salient ideas of effect altruism. But yeah, like if someone wants to draw that implication, then it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I mean, like speaking personally, I feel like I was inspired when I started learning about effective altruism to be like, okay, actually, there's so many amazing things we can do to help others. This makes me feel like I should be devoting more of my time and my resources. And yeah, it does seem like a lot of people have that experience. But okay, so it's an it's a further implication that people are free to draw. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I also would say the debate about how much to focus on helping others is just a really important and fascinating debate. And I would encourage anyone to anyone interested to spend some time thinking about it and what it means in their own life. But again, I just, that's this much more general thing that, you know, has been around for centuries as a debate. And I wouldn't say is like the core thing in effect altruism. Okay. So uh, you promised to give us your definition a little bit earlier. I feel like we've gotten bits and pieces, but do you want to just like lay out your sort of how you would, if somebody said, what is effective altruism, Ben, what would you say? Well, yeah. So there's, there's maybe two different questions. One is kind of like, what are the best ways to explain it in practice, which is kind of more of a marketing question. And then the other question is just like, what actually is it if we just want to be really clear about the claims? For what actually it is, just a very high level definition I would use is effective altruism is about, is about seeking the best ways to contribute to the common good. And so then we can divide that into, you can roughly divide that into two projects. First is the intellectual project, which is trying to figure out what are the best ways of contributing to the common good. And so that's more like a field of research, either in academia or in nonprofits, where people are trying to have this debate. And then the second part is the practical project, which is like, given our current answers about what are the best ways of helping others or contribute to the common good, let's see if we can actually put those into practice and actually tackle some of the world's most pressing problems. And that's more than the social movement around the effect of altruism of people who sometimes working together are trying to tackle these big issues. Would you agree with the following statement that the intellectual project is kind of, in some sense, you know, the reason that it's part of effective altruism is because people think, in fact, sometimes, you know, doing a bunch of research is a way of contributing a lot to the common good because it like helps people do better actions later. Yeah. So there's, yeah, we can, in a sense, we can see them all as just part of one thing, Mm -hmm. but I think in practice it's useful to split them because being an academic research field is like very different from being a movement of people actually trying to like do projects in the world. So they have like a different qualitative character. Okay, not to belabor the sort of definition <laughs> point too But we much. did both study philosophy, so... <laughs> yeah, so forgive us, listeners. <laughs> you know, you keep using this phrase, the common good. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so to some extent, that's... I actually see like the question of what is the common good as part of the study of effect altruism and part of the intellectual project of effect altruism, along with other things like which problems are most pressing and so on. But, well, yeah, so in, in Will McCaskill's paper where he introduces a definition of effect altruism... He suggests that we should think of the common good as about what helps people from an impartial perspective and is like what he calls tentatively welfarist. Okay, so Um, explain both those things, impartial perspective and tentatively welfarist. Yeah, so that impartial bit is kind of like the common bit. So impartial very roughly is just like, we're going to treat like everyone's interest as equal. And then the welfarist bit is then a bit about what does it mean to benefit someone's interests and... There it's kind of saying, well, it's about how much welfare people have, or sometimes also called well-being. 
which is about how good or bad their lives are, which could be understood as just happiness versus suffering in a kind of very narrow way, or you could understand it in like a broader way, like how flourishing are they? How fulfilled are they? But yeah, it's like something about your life being good or bad. So this sounds like extremely commonsensical. And of course, we should not be like partial or like not privilege some interests over others. And we you know, should aim to make people happy and well off. So what are the like salient alternatives to wanting to contribute to the common good defined this way? Well, most people don't only want to contribute to the common good with their lives because they also want to like have a personally fulfilling life and they also want to like benefit their friends and family. Like they care more about their friends and family than strangers. And like we were saying, I don't really want to like get into the debate about how much you should focus on your kind of personal goals versus the common good. I'm just starting from the perspective that like the common good is like one thing that matters. And yeah, as to why that is, it's just like, well, most people believe like, if something you do will like harm a stranger or you could easily benefit a stranger with little cost to yourself, then that would be a good thing to do. And that kind of shows that we care about people in general, at least to some extent. Yeah, I think the thing I was asking after was more like something in between your personal goals and the mm. common good. So like lots of people aim to do good with their careers or with their donations, but they don't say I'm, I'm aiming explicitly at the common good. So like what's what's the difference between what they're doing and what effective altruists are aiming at? I mean, it would depend a lot on the person and it's often a bit hard to tell. Like some people, when they come to doing good, they think they should really focus on helping in their local community, which could be done because they care about impartiality. So then maybe they are impartial, but they just think that in practice, they can help the most in their local community because they like know it the best. So maybe they are being impartial, but it's just like a, the thing that in practice works. But instead, maybe they actually think like in some sense, moral sense, they have greater obligations to their community and it's actually morally better for them to help the local community. And it's like, it's often hard to tell. But I'm yeah, I'm not sure if that is like the most common difference. Maybe one with like, the welfareism thing, if you're focused on welfare, that might be welfare of sentient beings in general, not just humans. But it would mean that like non-sentient beings don't intrinsically have moral value. So like, yeah, the natural world has lots of value because it enables all these sentient beings to have, have good lives that doesn't have value in and of itself. Whereas some environmentalists would say, no, like even if there was no animals and insects and any humans and anything that might be sentient it would still be very valuable to have a pristine natural world okay yeah so tentatively effective altruists think or at least the project is not about advancing those other values yes though yeah like it's the tentatively bit is to show that it's not entirely certain but this is kind of our like best guess at what to focus on and yeah like the reasons for that is most people loads of people agree that all else equal if people have like suffering or good lives there's an important difference between those two things and we think in practice, empirically, there are big differences in how much welfare different actions produce. So it's like a really important thing to focus on, even if it's maybe not the final word on what, what matters. Yeah. So like speaking as somebody who believes that things matter besides welfare, but is also a member of the effective altruism community, it's like, well, look, I think that like it matters for people to have true beliefs or something or like, you know, I'm not sure about this, but like, that's my sense. That would be my best guess that there are these other things that matter. But people not suffering and being happy seems like extremely important and like something that, you know, you're probably not going to make a mistake by devoting a lot of resources to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's listening who wants more rigorous treatments of these, like these are like also just standard terms in moral philosophy. And so you can go and read about them on Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Yeah. And I think we have some links on our Key Ideas page where we sort of summarize this a bit and link off to other readings. So, all right. 
is there anything else to say on just like what is EA or what is effective altruism and how does it differ from the public perception? Well, yeah, just quickly on the definition, my definition didn't have using evidence and reason actually as part of the fundamental definition. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying we should seek the best ways of helping others through whatever means are best to find those things. And obviously, like, I'm pretty keen on using evidence and reason, but I wouldn't foreground it. If it turns out that we should consult a crystal ball (laughs) in order to find out if that's the best way, then we should do that. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So another, again, like very abstract, like whatever it is that turns out to be the best way of figuring out how to do the most good. Yeah. I mean, in general, you have these, this, this just big question of like how narrow or broad to make the definition of effects altruism. And it's, it is, it is a difficult, it's a difficult thing to say. Do you want to just talk about, you know, why is effective altruism important? Why is this project important? And, you know, we've, we've sort of gestured at a couple of reasons, but like, what's the rigorous Mm. argument? Yeah. And it's, it's like a bit alarming in a way that there isn't just a rigorous argument for effective altruism written up somewhere. Because that kind of seems like that's like the central thing that people interested in effective altruism care about. So yeah, I was thinking a bit about what that argument should actually be recently. And so yeah, I think there's like three main premises. And then yeah, but before we get onto those, like just what what is actually the claim? And so I see the claim as something like, if you care about the common good, so we're just taking that as a given and like starting from that point, then it's a mistake not to pursue the project of effective altruism where the project I defined earlier as trying to seek the very best ways of helping others rather than just like the typical ways. Okay. And then also the next clause, it's more of a mistake, the greater to the extent to which each of the three premises hold. Okay. So it's actually, there's a kind of a spectrum of how important effective altruism is. And it might be like more or less of a mistake to not be into effective altruism. All right. Uh, and those are the three premises that you're about to give us. Yes. Um, okay. So we can <laughs> yeah, come there's back. a lot to hold into your head here. Yeah, but... let's, let's come back to the spectrum thing after we have the premises to make it a bit more clear. But um, cool. all right. So what, what are the premises? How do we get to this conclusion? Yeah. So I think one premise is, I call it like the, the spread premise, which is just that there are big differences about how much different actions contribute to the common good. Second one is identifiability. So it's that we can actually find these unusually high impact actions with moderate effort. And then the third one is novelty. So that the things that we could find that are really good are like different from the ones that common sense would get us to focus on normally. So if there are these big differences in how much good you can do and you can figure out what they are and there aren't, they aren't what you're already doing, then it's important to that extent to try to figure out what the best well, ways yeah, of doing good are. To focus on those actions when you're trying to do good. Okay. Yes. And this is, and you've said like, well, I, this is starting from the point where yes, you do care about the common good. And so it's kind of saying, well, if you care about the common good, some ways of helping the common good are like way better than others. So to not do those things, you're just failing in your goal, your stated goal. Okay. So maybe in order to like see how these premises add up to the conclusion, we could talk about each premise and what, what it would mean if it was false. And then like some reasons to think it could be false, but why you aren't persuaded by them. So let's take the first one. So if it were not the case that there are these big differences in how much actions contribute to the common good, I guess that would mean that, you know, it's not that important to figure out the best ones because they're only a little better than the worst ones anyway. Is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. Though, yeah, it's maybe worth saying, again, it's good to think of this as a spectrum. Like if some of the best things you can focus on are like a thousand times better than others, then that means effect altruism is like enormously important. But even if it's only like twice as good, well, say if in one career you could save one person's life and another career you could save two people's lives. 
well, that's like a whole person's life. Yeah. <laughs> like that's a huge, that's a huge deal. Even then it might be like pretty important to really be attentive to these differences in scale. Yeah. So I guess when it would defeat the argument if it was like, oh, well, actually it's only, you know, 1.005 <laughs> times better. Um, yes. And so it's like you make somebody's life a tiny bit better and you're like, well. Yeah. I mean, I think the argument's more likely to kind of be defeated by like the combination of things. Like if you're kind of more pessimistic about being able to find the best things and they're like a bit less novel and there's a lower spread, then you end up being like, ah, oh, effect is kind of meh. I was thinking actually could be defeated by any of them being false. So, you know, even if you could find them and they weren't what you were already doing, if they were only a tiny bit better, at least effective altruism wouldn't be very important. Yeah, no, so I definitely agree with that. Okay. If that first premise is just false, let's say the best things are only like 1% better than the average thing, then it's already like not important. But that's, in practice, no one seems to hold that position. The thing that's more realistic is to just be a bit unenthused about all three together. Okay, and that can sort of add up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I guess just to like make it ultra clear, and maybe we're sort of belaboring this slightly and our producer can decide to cut this (laughs) if this is too much belaboring. But um, so the second premise, if you can't figure out what it is that is the best thing, then, or like you can't do it without spending maybe so many resources that you're bankrupt by the time you figure it out, then, you know, it's not worth it. And there might be some great actions out there, but you just can't figure out what they are. And then the third one, I guess, is like, well, if the third premise is false, then in some sense, we're already doing effective altruism. Yes. So it's not important to like do it on purpose because we'll do it on accident anyway. Yeah, it's like almost not that effective altruism is wrong. It's just that it's uninteresting. Right. But then, yeah, it wouldn't need to be its own thing. It's just, yeah, we're like already doing it. Cool. So like maybe hopefully someday <laughs> it will be the case that the third premise is false. <laughs> yes. So, you know, with these, it, it does seem like this is a valid argument to me. So I guess if somebody was going to object, they'd have to reject one of the premises. So what are some ways that people could reject these premises? Yeah. Or maybe just to clarify, when you're rejecting effective altruism, you can reject the core ideas, which is what I've been trying to cover here. You could also just say, well, I agree with the core ideas, but EA as it exists in practice is not actually pursuing the thing that matters. Like maybe it's too biased or like all, all kinds of reasons. And so, yeah, there's a whole category of objections to effective altruism in practice, which might be good ones. But we're just here talking about if you really want to get like the meat, the very, very core fundamental underlying idea, what do you need to do? Right. So I guess like if somebody objected to effective altruism in practice, but they bought this argument that we've been talking about, maybe the thing for them to do would be like to start their own effective altruism movement with a different name that gets it right instead of. Yeah, I mean, an objection to effective altruism in practice could just be something like the whole idea of a movement is like a bad right, thing because okay. <laughs> it like ruins people's epistemology. Um, Makes them biased because they want to promote their movement. Yeah, or like, or it, it means people, then they're like, they're too influenced by like the social norms in the community rather than thinking for themselves or something. But yeah, you should want to still be an effective altruist in some form, just not with the current community. Got it. Okay. So objections to the premises. How might somebody go about rejecting one of these? Yeah, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of different options. So I think the way I most like to see it is there's there's a spectrum of how important effective altruism is, which is basically determined by kind of how much better the best actions are and compared to what you would have done otherwise. And how easily we can figure them out and how yeah, different okay. they are from what we're doing <laughs> yes, already. Okay, yeah. So I mean, though, if you were going to boil it down, it would be like expected value of like best thing you can find with effective altruism versus expected value of what you would have done without effective altruism. And that kind of the difference between those two is kind of like 
the additional impact you have due to effective altruism. And so basically how much of a mistake it is not to be an effective altruist depends on how big that thing is. And so there's there's basically a bunch of forces that push that thing out to seeming very big, but there's also a bunch of forces that push it back towards the best thing to do is closer to common sense or what people would have done otherwise. And which of those things you think kind of dominates determines how important or how much of a mistake it is not to pursue the project of effect altruism. Okay. Maybe just one thing that pushes things out, the differences out towards being bigger, I think is like, so neglectedness as a rule of thumb is something in this area where if you think that all else equal, something that's more neglected, you can have more impact because there's been less diminishing returns. So fewer people are working on it. So it's less the case that an additional... The best things have already been done. Yeah. Yeah. And then kind of naively seems like there's very big differences in neglectedness. Like some priorities have had over a thousand times more invested in them than others. And so if those priorities seemed roughly similarly important and similarly tractable, like the other two dimensions, then the more neglected one would be a thousand additional resources would achieve a thousand times as much. So just to get slightly more concrete here, when we talk about priorities, you know, what are some examples? I was mainly thinking of different global problems you could work on. Though, yeah, you, you could you could think about it as terms of like what interventions you want to do as well. But, okay, yeah. but you're thinking about things like education in the US versus global health versus trying to get representation for future generations. Yeah, so like education in the US gets around a trillion dollars spent on it each year, I suppose, to benefit. I don't know how many kids there are actually in American schools each year, probably what, a few tens of millions. Whereas global health... So all international aid, I think, is around 140 billion as of a couple of years ago. So there's like between five and 10 times as much being spent on US education as being spent on all international aid. That's not a completely fair comparison because like there's other resources going to the global poor besides international aid. Right. I mean, like uh, resources of their own government and economies, and presumably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. But still, I think even if you take into account of that, like probably more is being spent on US education. And it's like, we're also talking about a billion people rather than a few tens of millions of people. So there seems to be a really big difference between those two. Although I guess the number of people, that's more on the importance category than the neglectedness category. Yeah, that's true. But I was trying to... Com- Ideally, we'd be comparing problems of like similar importance okay. and then showing like the big neglectedness differences. I guess you could talk about like the same number of people as there are kids in the US, you know, how much money is going to like improving their health, people who are underprivileged in, you know, around the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe a clearer example is between different existential risks. So like, so climate change has hundreds of billions spent on it per year and is widely agreed by people who, who want to have a positive impact to be perhaps the most pressing global priority. Whereas as we've covered on this podcast, we think how AI goes, especially from a long-termist perspective, seems to be really crucial as well. But even today, having become much more popular as an issue, it's still under 100 million a year spent on research into AI safety and long-termist AI policy. So that's like at least a factor of a thousand difference between the two in terms of how neglected they are. So that suggests very big differences in like working to try to address you know, AI safety versus working to address climate change. Yeah, and where, and where climate change is already a really pressing global priority compared to kind of just more everyday priorities that we might have. Okay, so what's a factor that sort of pushes in the other direction that somebody who is skeptical of effective altruism or the importance of effective altruism might bring up? So I think one is epistemic humility. So this is like, this is the idea that you know, what, what should we believe about a difficult question? Like how, how much of a pressing priority is AI safety? 
one answer to that is to just try and figure it out for yourself. Another answer to that is just go with like what other sensible people think and kind of take an average across them. And like some evidence that that kind of approach works is like in the forecasting. So people have tried to measure like what's the best way to predict geopolitical events, which is super hard to predict. And it turns out that getting like 100 people who are really good at forecasting, seeing what they think will happen and then averaging that together is a really good way of doing it. And it's like usually better than any individual person. Also, it just, I mean, sort of, I feel like more basically, it just seems like the community as a whole will often be better at knowing stuff than a single person because they just have a lot more brain power between them. Yeah. And you can think of it as like, if you, if someone else has a radically different view of what the biggest priorities are from you and they you're in like a similar position epistemically, why would you think like you're right and they're wrong? Unless you have some kind of really clear explanation of like they're making this mistake and you haven't made some other mistake that they've figured out and you haven't figured out. So there's a kind of symmetry argument for going with what other people think. And yeah, it seems like if you put a lot of weight on that kind of argument, then you should be focusing on the priorities that kind of a sensible coalition of other people would think are the biggest priorities. And that almost brings you back to like the most common sense priorities by definition. So just to clarify, this seems like more of a reason to think that, in fact, we're already doing the things that are best for contributing to the common good because common wisdom has come to think whatever priorities it, in fact, is prioritizing are the best things. And so we should probably defer to that. Yes, if you like really buy that in a strong form. Okay. Yeah, it might still mean you should change your career a lot. The thing you should probably defer to is what people in general think from an impartial like impartial perspective what would most benefit others mm -hmm. is the best thing mm -hmm. which is not what most people do with their lives so like for instance it probably means you should work on climate change because that seems to be what kind of when people are thinking about from a global perspective what most matters often climate change is the answer and obviously most people don't spend their careers fighting climate change so it could in yeah, practice no, you for that clarification yeah you probably still change your life but it would be but in a much less extreme way than if it's like no ai safety is the main thing right and in particular, it would mean that the project of effective altruism, which involves doing all of this, you know, relitigating of what really is the best way to do good is like less important because in fact, we all can kind of just defer to each other or the common wisdom about. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we can see that this argument in a strong form becomes really implausible because it's like no one can ever discover a new global priority because right. it's like already just everyone knows what the best thing is. Yeah. And I guess I would also say that like, I think in practice, if we got loads of experts together and said, what were the most pressing global problems? probably they would still, some of them would still agree we should put some effort into AI safety. So it's not actually not being epistemically humble to invest a little bit into AI safety. And so I'm not actually even sure that our current priorities conflict with epistemic humility. But I just, what I actually want to do here is start what I see as like a real debate about what the actual core ideas of effective altruism are. And I, I'm just saying one kind of interesting avenue for attack seems to be a strong form of epistemic humility. Okay. So what are some other interesting avenues for attack? Well, so if we go back to this kind of, there's some things that make us more contrarian or like less further away from common sense and there being big differences there and other things that make us kind of go back towards common sense. Yeah, well, one, one another kind of factor that pushes us back is regression to the mean. Yeah, so what's that mean? So, okay, so you could come along, you'd be like, well, I did this estimate and I found that there's this, like amazing global priority that no one else is working on. And it's like a hundred times better than what everyone else is doing. So then the question is, should you just trust that? Or should you figure that you've probably made a mistake somewhere? And because you've, your calculation has said, there's this thing that's like amazing compared to what everyone else is doing. Most likely you've made an error in the direction of it being better than it actually is. 
And when you figure out all the errors in your argument, it will make that thing end up seeming a lot worse than your kind of naive calculation suggests. So I guess to sum this up, is it something like there's this phenomenon where usually when you do more investigation on things that seem like outliers, they will tend to be closer to the average upon further investigation. So like you should think that's true of a bunch of, you know, whatever problem you think is really an outlier when it comes to how good it is to work on. Yeah, that's the kind of broad character of things. Like regression to the mean is like a particular thing in statistics, which also has a formal meaning, which is pretty related to what we're saying here, but not exactly the same. And so then, yeah, the question is, how big a correction should you make? If you should make a huge correction generally, then again, effect altruism becomes less interesting because like we're the people who are being like, oh, this is the thing that everyone else is wrong about. Whereas if it's like more modest, then, well, maybe like the things that seem best to us aren't quite as good as they first seem, but they could still be much higher impact than what we would have focused on anyway. So I guess this is another one where if you took it to the really extreme, it would be implausible, right? Because it's like the really extreme version would be like, well, you should expect everything to be exactly the same in terms of how good it is to work on, right? And that yeah, seems... the one thing is regression to the mean for, ha- happens more for like speculative, uncertain estimates than mm. for really robust things. Okay. So it could end up meaning you focus on like the most robust ways of doing good you can think of, which then, I don't know, maybe that would lead you back to something like global health. And so by um, robust, you mean like you're really unlikely to be wrong that, for instance, distributing treated malaria nets, sorry, insecticide <laughs> treated bed nets for malaria prevention is like in fact, not saving lives, that seems like really unlikely because we have good evidence that it is. So, you know, you might want to go with that instead of the like crazy speculative stuff. Yeah. Or maybe you think you should just help friends that you know, because you like know them so well that you can be like guaranteed that it helps them a little bit. I see. I think that's like not, it's like actually really hard to know what makes people happy, even those that you know. So it's like. (laughs) You should just meddle in your friends' (laughs) lives and assume you know what's best for them. (laughs) Yeah. I suppose if it's like, you know, help them move house or something like, you know you've at least saved them some time. So that's yeah. like a benefit. It'd be like weird if that turned out not to be good for them. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, so regression to the mean epistemic humility. Yeah. Are there any yeah. others that are worth bringing up? Yeah. So, okay. So just, just to name a few other things, maybe a bit more quickly, but I think there's something in the area of people's like personal passions and interests being important where if you kind of take the more extreme perspective, the best things are likely to be these things that are like well, we just focus on neglectedness. The most effective things are just like the things that are important, but no one else is working on. And so those are very unlikely to be things that you like happen to have developed a passion for because you will have never like stumbled across them before until you actively seek them out. And then that does make it harder in some ways to work on them. And this, you know, the way this commonly comes up is like, someone's like, okay, what about working on biorisks? And then someone's like, oh, I've never heard of that before. I'm not passionate about that at all. It sounds totally outside of my normal. And like, I have thing. no experience that would make me good at working on it because I hadn't heard of it. Um, yeah. There's a whole, like, it's harder to get career capital in these more neglected issues as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe they're already passionate about climate change. Cause that's like something that like lots of their friends have talked about and they've worked on before. And it would be kind of easier for them to be motivated to work on climate change. And if you think effects like that are really big, then again, that seems to push us back more towards just like do something that's generally in the air and kind of common sense and that you're motivated by and don't try to seek out these really unusual novel priorities that would kind of make effect altruism the most, the most important. 
Yeah, so it seems like this is sort of a way of directly pushing back on the neglectedness argument. So you say like, okay, yeah, more neglected problems would be better to work on, all else equal. But in fact, when something is neglected, it also means that people are going to be worse at working on them. I guess another sort of related thing is, or so those sort of like maybe cancel out or roughly cancel out or something like that. Another, I guess, related argument would be if something is really neglected, it's hard to make progress because nobody listens to you. You're just like the person you're like, you're standing there being like, let's all work on AI safety. And everyone's like, we're not going to give you a grant because we don't think that seems important. And therefore, in fact, it's really hard to make progress. Yeah. So if we think like impact is kind of how pressing the cause is times how good your opportunity is for helping times how skilled you are at that thing. Often there seems to be some anti-correlation between the, how good the opportunities are you can get versus pressingness, where it's like in an area that's really neglected, it's just hard to do something really, really big because there's just fewer resources around. Although, okay, yeah. So wait, no, now I feel confused because we started that off by saying like, well, if something is not neglected, then it's more likely that only some not very good opportunities will be left for you to take. But now you're saying like, in fact, if something is more neglected, that means that there will be worse opportunities. So like, how do those things interact? Well, so one term is kind of how efficient extra resources are in producing good. So you could that's kind of what we mean when it's like a really pressing area. It's like an additional dollar goes a long way. But then there's like how much kind of leverage can you bring to bear on that problem? And it seems like being a bit less neglected is kind of helpful on that one. So for instance, if you're a scientific researcher, you could get much bigger grants to work in like a more mainstream priority. Like climate change. Yeah. Or if you're able to become a leader in the climate movement, you'll be kind of leading more people than if you become a leader of a much more niche issue. And so it's kind of a way in which it becomes a bit more tractable to work on things that are a bit less neglected. Yeah, exactly where you want to kind of count for that in the framework can kind of go different ways. But I think there is like some effect like this. And then, yeah, I mean, my my kind of personal view is like, yeah, there's probably reasons not to work on like the very, very crazily most neglected things. But I also doubt that the kind of optimal place to be is like on just common sense. But it's somewhere in between the two, but there's kind of a sweet spot of neglectedness where it's like not so neglected that you can't do anything and everyone thinks you're crazy and you're just wrong about, you're probably going to be wrong about it. But it's neglected enough that you have a kind of edge on just doing what everyone else is doing. Yeah, interesting. I think my intuition says that even if something were so neglected that literally nobody else in the world was working on it, I would still think that even though it'd be really hard to make progress, you'd probably still make a really big difference because like I'm imagining the very first person to work to like talk about climate change or something. I mean, I actually don't know the history, but I guess I'm imagining that even if nobody listened to them for their entire life, the fact there's like one paper out there that the next person could cite 30 years later turned out to like maybe accelerate the movement in, you know, a couple of decades and is plausibly really was really impactful, even though it sounds like a frustrating existence. <laughs> yeah, I think there's something to that. Like, yeah, one one thing that I think slightly helps to explain that is also value of information, where like being the first person ever to work on a cause helps us figure out a lot about whether that cause is worth investing in. And so, yeah, you kind of get those benefits right at the start. Okay. So, yeah I, I, yeah, I agree this could even end up just turning out that, yeah, you should still focus on the very most neglected things. Okay. In but which there's... case, like, effect altruism is, like, more important. So... One other argument that I've heard you talk about before is an objection to, I guess, the third premise. So this is, I think, Tyler Cowen argues that economic growth is, in fact, the sort of best thing we can do for the common good. And that economic growth is basically best served by people kind of just going about their business, trying to make a living for themselves. And that's like what people do anyway. And so if that were the case, then everyone would just already be doing what is the best action for making the world a better place. 
Yes. What do you think about that argument? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good that's a good style of objection to effective altruism is to try and show the things we're already working on are in fact like the best things from an impartial perspective. As to like whether Tyler Cohen one's work, I mean, I guess I don't. Yeah, I think existential risks are like more pressing from a long term perspective than economic growth. So that would be like one difference I'd have. And then I still feel pretty unsure about even if economic growth was the well, it's actually the economic growth rate is what he says is like most important. Mm, yeah. Um, or thanks. <laughs> it, it's the most key thing, whether that is actually best served by everyone going about their daily business. I mean, in our podcast with Tyler Cowen, he kind of agrees that this advice doesn't necessarily apply to like very talented people because he's kind of like, well, if you could go and become like an economics researcher or work at like a think tank that's promoting good policies for growth, that seems like a lot better than just kind of having a regular job in terms of how much you speed up economic growth. And um, it would mean things like we should really be focusing on innovation because if you want to change the economic growth rates, you basically have to change like the rate of innovation in society. And like most jobs don't seem to contribute that much to innovation, at least directly. Maybe they, they kind of do by increasing GDP and then some of that goes into innovation later. But I think it would be more like do the thing you can do that like most supports economic innovation. Okay. And that could end up being like pretty different. I think at the yeah. very least people should be donating things to like, they should be like investing in startups or they should just be giving grants to like interesting scientists or okay, yeah, uh, that would be like the highest impact thing they could do. All right. So it might mean it's like a bit closer to what we like do automatically, but not, it wouldn't be like just in fact the things people are inclined to do already. Um, I mean, that's my suspicion, but it's like, it's still an interesting question. Okay, so we've talked a bunch about reasons to reject this argument, but obviously you and I, in fact, do not reject this argument, at least provisionally, like think that effective altruism is really important. So why think that these three premises that imply that it's important are true? Yeah, so, well, one is that they might just seem obvious to you. <laughs> um, okay. But like putting that aside, I think probably the best way to demonstrate the premises is just by giving specific examples of things we can do that have much more impact than what people normally do. And yeah, I mean, that that is kind of like the whole subject of 80,000 Hours. We try to just be kind of constantly giving examples of those types of things. But like, this is now where I would place something like the arguments we talked about earlier for why to donate to global health charities. Because if you're saying, well, you could save a life, uh, I think it's like save a life equivalent for roughly one and a half thousand dollars or like give well currently. Well, that would mean that say... Okay, so a typical college graduate, I think in the US, makes like seventy to $80,000 $80, a year on average. That's the mean. And then, but so suppose you give like 10% of that, that would be $8,000 a year. And so then that's, what's that, roughly like four or five lives saved per year. And so then over a 40-year career, that's 40 times five, which I think is 200 lives, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and then like, that's an uh, incredible amount of good. And then it seems like people don't normally do that. So yeah. in fact, and you can even just have the same job that you would have had otherwise. So it's not even a big change to your life, but you've also saved 400 lives. And 200. So, sorry, 200. But yeah, that, I mean, that is pretty incredible. I mean, you think about if you save 200 people in like one event, you would think like, I'm a hero, but this is a way that you can save 200 people over the course of your life. Yes. But then the point is not that that's like what effective altruism says everyone should do. This is just a demonstration. This is just a proof of concept. We've identified at least one way to do way more good than we kind of normally think is possible. But effective altruism is important just if we can find any convincing example. Like we just need to be able to show this like one thing. And it's more important if we could find something that was doing even more good than that. Yes. And so, yeah, there's lots of other ways of 
demonstrating this and like I think we have content about why we think some global problems are maybe 10 or 100 times more pressing than others and then again that would that would mean like if you can work on one of the more pressing ones and if it's really 100 times more pressing then that means that in your 40-year career you'd achieve as much as what would normally take 4,000 years of work so again it's like that would mean you're at least in terms of contribution to the common good, like a really huge, a really huge difference. And like, if that's true, then it would mean that taking this seriously is really important. Right. So, I mean, that's if, if the problems we think are the most pressing are a hundred times more pressing than the problem you would have worked on otherwise. Yes. Which is a, that is a bit of a complication because if, if you would have done something like climate change otherwise, and that's already pretty good, maybe it's hard to find something that's a hundred times better than climate change. But I, I would still say that some of our most neglected things are maybe like 10 X better. Right. And presumably lots of people are working on things where like we think the most pressing issues are a hundred times better than uh, or more pressing. Yeah, though one thing pushing back is it is important like so you could switch to a more pressing issue. But then if that means that, say, you end up in a career with worse personal fits, you do need to take into account that as well. And again, that might make the differences a bit smaller. But I still think there can often be large differences. Yeah, I mean, it also seems like even if you don't have a good personal fit for, for instance, like AI safety, you know, among the like set of top 10 or something, most pressing problems, probably there's something that you could like do a pretty good job at for most people. Yeah, and you could always like donate to the most pressing thing. So in a way, that's a good baseline is earning to give and then donating whatever you could give to the most pressing thing. Right. So that's like kind of a a version of the just donating 10% example, but like maybe you even decide to try to donate more by taking a higher earning career. Yeah. And there's some things seem like much higher impact than what we would have done otherwise. Yeah. And yeah, I think there's maybe just like loads of other examples just to give a quite randomly different one is in doing good better and on, yeah, on Brian Tomasic's blog, which we can link to, he does an analysis of how much animal suffering you avoid by cutting out different meat products. And he actually shows that there's roughly like a thousand times difference in animal suffering between like a pound of beef versus a pound of, I think, chicken or fish. And so that would actually mean that you could kind of cut out like 99% of the impact of your diet on animal suffering just by giving up chicken and fish, which again, is like not a commonly held thing to do. Like most people are like, you should either be vegan or you should, or just whatever, eat meat, it's fine. Yeah. I mean, I guess like in the current context, maybe the the like comparison is between somebody who sort of chooses randomly what meat to give up because they're thinking like, look, I want to reduce my my contribution to animal suffering. So I'm going to give up, let's say, chicken. Well, and yeah, sort of pick it out I mean, most hat. people actually do the opposite where they give up beef and oh, red yeah, meat first right. and then they keep eating fish. Yeah, red where... meat just seems meatier somehow. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> right. Uh, whereas this says like better to give up Oh, and, pe- and people keep eating eggs as well, which is actually one of the on the bad end of the spectrum. Yeah. Okay, so those are some sort of reasons to believe in the first premise. Any sort of Well, like... no, I think those actually show all three premises. Because like you're just demonstrating, taking the CA's perspective gives you this big boost in impact. So you kind of all three have to be true for them to work. Yeah, okay, no, that's helpful. So like because we had to fi- be able to figure out that in fact some problems are, or at least we think we've provisionally figured out <laughs> that they are more impactful to work on an expectation. And yes. also it's not just like what everyone's doing otherwise. No, thank you. Yeah, but then yeah, if you would disagree with our analysis and you disagree for like every case that we might bring, then that's another way of objecting to effective altruism. Cool. That makes sense. All right. So is there anything more to say on like why believe this argument for the importance of effective altruism? Yeah, I think there's some qualitative arguments to help make it plausible. 
It's because like we kind of come in with like, well, what should our prior be? Should we expect it's possible to have way more impact, like do way more to help the common good than we might have first thought? Or should we be like skeptical of these examples that I just brought up and whether we might be able to find other examples besides them? And I think there's a couple of things there. One is just the question of what your priors should be. And so that's just like the beliefs you come in with before you think about it. Yeah. And it seems like my prior is basically that some actions will do more good than others and some actions will be more costly than others. And how cost effective an action is, is like the most kind of the multiple of two. It's like one divided by the other. And so if there's like big differences between both of those two factors, then we should expect it's like big differences in the effectiveness of different actions. I guess one thing, one reason to think the opposite would be if you thought there was sort of a sort of efficient market for doing good, right? If you like thought, well, if something really did do more good than other things, then everyone would have already started doing that and then like taken all those opportunities. And so I'm going to, you know, practically everything that's available to me is going to be roughly equal in impact. Yeah, exactly. And another kind of big way of having the debates about effective altruism is just the question of how efficient are our current institutions at doing good. And so, yeah, I, I guess there I would say like my... My kind of theoretical perspective is like our current institutions in some ways do quite a good job of furthering the common good, but they have lots of important gaps in them. And the existence of these gaps is another reason why we should expect effective altruism to be important. And you can think of like one whole framing of effective altruism is what we're trying to do is find the biggest, most pressing gaps in our existing institutions and then fill fill those. Yeah, I don't think I know that many people who like really believe that the sort of market for doing good is super efficient. Although actually maybe my like dad is a objection, uh, an, an <laughs> exception and sorry, dad, for calling you out. But I feel like, I mean, I remember showing him the Peter Singer article, Famine, Affluence and Morality. And he was like, nah, but like all the things you try to do are going to like have these crazy side effects and they'll all kind of end up maybe equal. Okay. I'm probably misrepresenting yeah. it, but I think maybe that was like one way of, of thinking maybe that it was sort of efficient. Like if there was a great opportunity that didn't have crazy side effects that made it super unpredictable, then somebody would have done it. Yeah, I th- exactly. I think that's kind of, there's some plausibility in that. Another way if you could get to kind of reasonable efficiency quite easily is like, so we tend to think, well, I'm a bit worried about this getting too technical, but if we think like that different actions, how much impact they have is like a log normal distribution. So like a normal distribution is kind of like everything's, all the different actions are quite clustered around the mean. It's a bell curve. Yeah, it's a bell curve. Log normal distribution looks a bit the same, but then it has this, what's called a heavy tail. So there's like a small number of things that are way better than the median thing. And so like income is log normally distributed where the highest earning people earn like hundreds of times more than the median person. But if you have one of these log normal distributions, because that tail is only a minority of the things, you only need there to be some kind of effectiveness minded people to go and like take the tail. So maybe like Bill Gates, he's like, he's just getting all the good opportunities. Mm. And then once the tail is gone, everything else is kind of back at the median. So then you could end up being kind of like just back at the median again, even if there's only like a, a few percent of people are really kind of impact minded. Interesting. So that, yeah, that's that's really interesting because then that would be a way of saying, okay, I agree with the first premise that some things do a lot more good than others. And I think we could figure out what they are, but I just think Bill Gates has already figured <laughs> it out. And yeah. so like the options available to me are in fact all relatively similar in terms of impact. Yes. And I think this did happen a little bit when people went into global health, because one of the things that seems best is childhood vaccinations and Bill Gates, plus a bunch of governments and so on who have all banded together to do this, have kind of done all of the easy opportunities to do that around the world. 
And so that stuff was all taken by Bill Gates. And that's, that's, that stuff seems more effective than malaria nets. I see. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So, yeah. There is like a bit of that happening. But then the question is, is it so much that it takes away all the good things? Right. And like maybe it takes away all the good things in a particular area, perhaps. Or sorry, by good, of course, we mean better than the median. So like the median might still be good. But then like, can you move to another area and then find some more exceptional opportunities there? Just to kind of wrap up on efficiency. Okay. We kind of think, well, we have our, our existing institutions, we kind of have like the free market and that's kind of incentivizing us to do the things that most, well, kind of the things that people are most willing to pay for in, in the market. And so there's like a lot of incentives to do that. And then we have our governments, which try to like, obviously the free market leaves out lots of things as market failures, public goods, things like that. And then we try to use the government to take those things. But then it seems clear to me that those two things don't cover everything that might matter. Yeah. Especially because like governments mainly focus on what their citizens need and they focus less on global public goods. So they, they focus on public goods within their own countries. And then also they have a lot of issues with short-termism, like especially focus on the election cycle. So we should kind of think that provided like fixing market failures in 30 years time, we might think there's like not much being done about that currently in our society. Which is maybe kind of like climate change might be an example of a sort of longer term market failure. And it's also global again, where if the US spends loads to stop climate change, most of the benefits of that accrue to other countries rather than the present US citizens. Right. And then we shouldn't expect, of course, for the for the sort of consumer market to provide all of the goods because it's mostly responding to, you know, it's it's skewed by the fact that some people have a lot more resources than others, even though it's not because their interests are more important. Yes. And then all the like kind of market failures and coordination failures, the, the kind of classic economic studies. Okay. So that's that's efficiency and why we should probably not expect the world to be like already doing all of the things to make the world a better place that, yeah. are, that are the best. I mean, we in theory then do have the nonprofit sector to try and fill in these gaps, but that's only a few percent of GDP and it seems to have plenty of its own issues. So, so this would though be the framing is just to try to think like, well, we've got like academia, nonprofits, government, free markets, what's like not being covered by those? And if there, if there are those gaps, then that would probably be what effect altruism would focus on. Yeah. And I think like it would take a pretty optimistic person to be like, nope, (laughs) no gaps. It's totally covered. Yes. Um, Yeah. I mean, and I guess there's another big argument for that is, I mean, long-termism is a big argument for that because just, well, there's all these future generations who just don't really have any say in these institutions. And so there's no reason to expect that our existing institutions are like at all doing what's best from a long-termist perspective. Right. Okay. So is there anything else to say about why people might find this argument persuasive or unpersuasive? Well, so there's like, there's actually like two others that have been taken by people. One, I don't want to cover too much now, but it's like the kind of argument from human irrationality, where it's just like, well, we have loads of cognitive biases. There's no, there's no reason to think that our intuitions will be like good at finding the things that do the most, do the most. So we need to take the systematic approach to finding them. And then the one that I've kind of put more. Oh, I see. So that's an argument for, that's the reason to support the argument for effective altruism. I thought you were going to say the yeah. opposite. That oh, it's like, okay. <laughs> oh, we're so bad at figuring stuff out that in fact, like we can't ever well, figure out what does the most good because we're too irrational. Yeah. So this would, if you see effects altruism as the claim of something like, well, what we need to do is apply systematic reasoning to doing good. Then you could be like, currently we don't apply systematic reasoning and that doesn't work. But if we apply systematic reasoning, then we'll do way better. So therefore effects altruism. Okay. Like that's kind of how that argument works. That's a bit of a different way of, that's putting a lot of emphasis on the evidence and reason bit, right. which I actually wanted to de-emphasize. Okay. 
yeah. So anyway, the, the thing I focus on more is this idea that we're in unusual time in history. And so if you think over the last 200 years, people who were like educated and living in rich countries, we've become way wealthier than almost anyone in human history. Whereas, well, a lot of people are still like kind of living at subsistence level. And just being in that really privileged position should mean that there are things we can do to like help others to a big degree. And it's not just the kind of income inequality in the present generation, but also it seems like things we do today potentially have these really long-term effects. So there's also a kind of long-termist version of this argument where if I was a medieval peasant, I'm, I'm not causing climate change. I can't start to help to start a nuclear war. I can't elect a totalitarian government because these things are just like not technologically possible. Whereas as citizens of nuclear powers today and countries that are, are emitting lots of CO2 and doing factory farming and all these things, our actions can have these really massive kind of global and long-term effects. And all this technology and wealth basically gives us this unusual amount of power that we've never had before in human history. And we should now expect that that power will enable us to, well, either do much more harm than we could have ever done before or much more to benefit others than we could have done before. And so I kind of like to see it as the stakes have got bigger over time for this reason. And if you were a medieval peasant, then probably, yeah, like the best thing you can do from a moral perspective is just like, don't cheat your neighbors, be kind of hardworking, look after your family. That's, that's the key stuff. And that might still be true of lots of people today who are living at subsistence level. Oh, yeah. Definitely. But, but yeah, for definitely. those of us who have the privilege to be able to like... Have spare resources. Right. And yeah. Then now it's really important for us to think about what exactly we can do with them that's best. I don't know if people are picking up that, but it's starting a thunderstorm here. Yeah, we have a, <laughs> yeah, it's starting to rain and thunder. So hopefully it's not too loud, but maybe gives a little atmosphere. Um, <laughs> here's like something somebody might say to that argument. They might say, okay, yeah, sure, I'm like richer than a medieval peasant, but so is, so are, so are the powers that be, such that, in fact, my like power to change things, it hasn't really changed very much because. I have to go up against these huge corporate interests or huge governments that have all of these resources if I want to make change. And so, in fact, I'm like no more powerful than a medieval peasant would be. Is there anything, uh, any response to that? I mean, I think compared to medieval peasant, it's just obviously wrong because at the very least, you could donate 10% of your income and you could like band together with a bunch of people and like pay for corporate, corporate lobbyists to like work on your behalf or whatever like the thing is that you think these powerful people are doing. So I just think there is just some ability to, at the very least, convert our money into things that are helpful. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't even depend on money, I think. And we have an analysis on the 8,000 Hours blog of the impact of voting in presidential elections. And we argue that although your chance of making the difference in the election is like absolutely tiny, you do have some chance, especially if you're living in a swing state. And if you do, it has like such a big effect like you're in, having basically a tiny influence over a massive thing. Those two things actually turn out to roughly cancel out. And so each vote probably does, in expectation, have a significant impact. Yeah, people should uh, go check out that article, <laughs> the 80,000 Hours for the upcoming election. Go out and vote, oh, yeah. 80,000 Hours listeners, for the upcoming U.S. election. Sorry, so U.S.-centric, but it's, uh, it's on the mind at the yes. moment. Okay, so we've talked a bunch about the core ideas of EA and the argument for those ideas being important. But we said earlier that we'd talk a little bit about framing and how to talk about effective altruism, you know, especially to people who don't know very much about it. Do you have any sort of tips or ways you think it should be framed? Yeah, so we opened the episode with me kind of suggesting 
we haven't been explaining effect altruism that well. Most people are engaging with not actually the core idea. And so, yeah, I think it would be great if we can start to develop some new ways of introducing effect altruism, which might avoid those misunderstandings, or at least, at the very least, would then appeal to a different group of people. Because like some people really like the kind of really global health evidence-based focused approach, but like that's not everyone that we want to appeal to. And so, yeah, I haven't really, this is like a big task. It's kind of like developing a whole new way of introducing effective altruism, which I have like not done. But <laughs> I, I think there's like some kind of ideas to bear in mind, given the things we've been discussing. And so one thing I think is important is you can kind of see effective altruism as like, there's two sides of things. One is like effective altruism as a community, where that's basically a group of people who are going around trying to do good in a certain way. And then there's effective altruism as an intellectual project. And kind of, we introduced both earlier. And I think most of our existing introductions tend to emphasize the community bit more than the intellectual bit. But actually both are really important. And the nice thing about emphasizing the intellectual bit is it gets kind of more to the heart of effective altruism. And so, yeah, so an example of the kind of community approach is, okay, effective altruism is a group of people who give 10% of their money to charities such as like those supported by GiveWell. And that's a very like practical, here's what we do kind of explanation. Whereas the more intellectual project explanation would be like, effective altruism is about the question of which ways to benefit others are most effective. And effective altruists like to do research into these questions and they try and tackle questions like, which global problems are most pressing? And what even is the common good? And what implications might different definitions have? And which interventions are most effective? And should we help people now or try and invest and help people later? And so I like introducing effective altruism as a question and then giving examples of like the types of questions that we think are really interesting and important. And then you can like see if someone's interested in one of those questions, then you can go more into like, okay, well, what, what do people say? Like some people say, no, we should focus on the most evidence-based thing because at least we can measure it. Other people are like, no, we should take a hits-based approach so that we get the tail, like the thing that's most effective. And that's like a debate within the community. And I think that type of approach is really good to appealing to someone who really likes this kind of like, they're really interested in intellectual debates. Yeah, intellectual debates and which is at least, you know, we don't want only people who want to intellectually debate things within effect altruism because we do also want to do things, but we do need lots of people doing research as well. So it's great to be able to appeal to that type of person. Yeah. I mean, just to throw out a data point, which, go I mean, this is not to contradict what you said, because what you said is we need both. But um, one thing that attracted me to effective altruism was like, wow, these people are actually doing this stuff. But, you know, I came from an unusual background. I was in academic philosophy, which is on the like extreme side of the like, let's have intellectual debates and not do that much stuff in the world. Whereas I guess most people are not on that extreme. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 and it is hard to say in many ways, obviously effect altruism is like really intellectual and people aren't good at practically doing things. So it's not totally obvious where we should push in that direction. But I would, I think there is another big point in favor of the intellectual project approach of introducing effective altruism, which is that it makes it really clear that it's not about particular answers. Whereas if you try to do the practical introduction, then you'll have to start talking about specific practical things that people are doing. And then it'll be very natural for people to then think, well, that is effective altruism. Whereas like, if you say, well, it's like people want to debate these types of questions, it's kind of making it, it makes it really obvious that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I feel like I would want to like very slightly tweak the intellectual framing if it were me to be not so much about debate. I mean, like debate is important, but we want to be, you know, emphasize that it's like about making progress and building on the knowledge of others. And in fact, actually 
we could debate all day about what it actually means to do the most good and maybe never feel satisfied fully with that answer. But like the project is about like coming to like, your best guess or, you know, what you think is actually the most justified course and building on the knowledge of others. And so it's this kind of more, um, yeah, still always in the service of that practical project. And yeah, so I feel like yes. I would, I would want to emphasize that part. Yeah. And whenever you're like introducing effective altruism, the main question is what order do you say things in? And so I would definitely say, I would introduce the questions and be like, this is what it's about. And then I would try to say fairly soon. And there's like people actually putting this into action. And like, that really matters because we can do more to solve pressing global problems. Yeah. And uh, we have some provisional answers that are better than nothing. And like, we don't need to start from scratch always. Yeah. So I think I, I would definitely mention that in an introduction as well. It's just, I would consider it not being the very, very first thing. Yeah, that makes sense. I think one other thing we could work on more and when we introduce effective altruism is to rely a bit less on examples in global health. And that is very hard to do because those examples are so kind of concrete and quantifiable that it enables you to get across the ideas in a very solid way. But given that only, say, like 30%-ish of the resources of the community are working on that problem, I think it, it's better to try to give a broader picture and especially because the, the global health stuff is already like really out there so people kind of already think it's more about that than it actually is and it would be nice if we could slightly more emphasize some of the other cause areas more yeah that makes sense i mean another reason to lead with global health is i do think it's very central you know it's sort of the one to beat you know what i mean like well maybe this isn't fair to certain other cause areas but i, I think it's oftentimes useful to think like is this thing better than just because it's so quantifiable, you can use yeah, it as a baseline. And it's been studied a lot, you know, it's not quite as speculative. Yeah, though I think if you're a long-termist, then the baseline I might use would be avoiding CO2 emissions. Oh, interesting. Because we yeah. know that, like, you can abate a ton of CO2 for about 10 euros, maybe one euro. And so that's kind of like something that, like, anyone can do is, like, you could at least buy carbon credits or or you could stop you could stop driving your car as much. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Okay, yeah, maybe that's a good baseline too. But okay, yeah. So, but in general, it does make sense that since like effective altruists focus on lots of other things, maybe global health has been centered a bit too much in in public presentations. Yeah, and as we kind of gave the evidence for that at the start, which is that like most people think that's literally what the definition of effective altruism is, or <laughs> well, many people do. So that yeah, those are some thoughts on how we might get better at explaining effective altruism, and I'm keen to hear more ideas on how we can do this better. So we've, yeah, we've covered some of the arguments for effective altruism, what I see as the key ideas. And we've also, through the course of the discussion, mentioned some factors that could be objections to effective altruism being really important. I think there's a, a bunch of other objections that could be really interesting to have more work done into them. And I'd be keen to see more research done. One that we've covered before on the podcast is cluelessness and how important that is. That's like a bit more of a general objection maybe to effective altruism, because that's almost saying that like, we don't know how much good any actions do. Yeah, so cluelessness uh, is the idea that like we're just kind of clueless in the dark about what in fact has the best consequences, even though some things really do have better consequences than others. Yeah, so it's just like a straight denial of the second premise. Right. There's a bunch of things about like are there other moral values that are really important and how might they compare to the common good as we've defined it? And yeah, well, this isn't really an objection to effect altruism directly, but it's like the more you care about things that aren't the common good, the less interesting effect altruism is. So I think that's another kind of area to respond. And yeah, and I think there's there's lots of 
other than, yeah, I mean, it basically, I would, and the reason we're doing this episode is because when people do write critiques of effectarchism, I would love it if they were actually responding to like one of the premises or like the overall, something about overall, like how big are the differences and impact between actions rather than just responding to a kind of particular suggestion like AI safety or donating to Against Malaria Foundation or earning to give, uh, like, which are not the core idea of hectarchism, they're just kind of ideas that people have had. Although, to be fair, I mean, it is useful when people object to those particular things, because, like, that helps yeah. contribute to well, the that conversation. Is, that right. is hectarchism. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's um, part of the, what I called earlier, the intellectual project of hectarchism. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it's a little bit annoying when people are like, no, hectarchism is wrong, but then they're actually, like, doing hectarchism. <laughs> um, right. they they're helping but, without even knowing. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, the the kind of, to be more charitable to that, if you could kind of show that all the things that Effectarchists have come up with are bad, then that would suggest that this isn't a very useful project, kind of indirectly. Right. It might suggest that the second premise is false or like probably false, like, okay, well, theoretically, we should be able to figure out what does the most, you know, what's the best thing to do, but we keep failing. So maybe, <laughs> yeah. in fact, we can't. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned spread of impact being one thing people might push back on. What are some yeah critiques you're interested in there? Well, it's almost not critiques, but if you just want to fundamentally research how important is effective altruism, one way of seeing the question is just how big are the differences in impact between actions? And I would kind of break that down into how much more pressing are some causes or global problems than others, how much more effective are some interventions than others, and then kind of like how big a difference is in personal fit between people just as like those are like three big topics and it'd be really cool to see much more research into each of those three questions and yeah i mean when those those that research would have to grapple with many of the issues that we've brought up in this episode like regression to the mean and epistemic humility and lots of other like yeah lots lots of other factors yeah and i guess that would be called global priorities research yeah it's, a, it's, it's a, a type subset of, of it yeah and, and it's yeah i mean it's it's interesting that People do, I think, have a lot of interesting thoughts about how big these differences are, and there is some work on it. But given that, in a way, that's the most important idea, there's like unfortunate lack of real published research on, on it directly. Yeah, no, it is kind of strange that it does seem like there isn't that much research that's directly trying to address the question of how big are difference, the differences in consequences between actions? Because it yeah. does feel like such a fundamental issue. Yeah, I mean, I think there's almost a kind of thing where... Effect altruism either kind of seems obvious to people, in which case that research is not that interesting, or it just seems like wrong, but in some really other different way. And so then again, that research isn't interesting. <laughs> um, and so it kind of ends up being a bit neglected. And maybe just to kind of zoom back to earlier, like even if just like something has like twice as one path open to you has like twice as much impact as another, that might still be a really like morally important thing. And so I wouldn't want to kind of make it seem too much like oh, it's like really, really uncertain whether effect altruism is a good idea. But then I do still think it's like, it is very interesting whether the differences are like a factor of three or a factor of 300. That makes a big difference to just how important effect altruism is. Yeah, and I guess like one kind of, you know, cool thing about that research is that it often serves sort of a dual role. Like one, it helps you figure out how important effective altruism is, but then you probably do that by looking at actual causes and in doing so you like, add something to the picture of which sort of issues should people be actually focusing on. So people might be able to, you know, kill two birds with one stone. Yeah, totally. Though I think there are also a lot of interesting cross-cutting things like some of the things we brought up. In the yeah, episode. like the more abstract stuff, like regression to the mean and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Is there any, like, last thing you want to leave the audience with, Ben? 
No, just to say, I hope people will run with trying to flesh out some of the things we've brought up and do, do more research into these questions. All right. Thank you very much. All right. That's the second installment uh, in this series of chats we'll be releasing uh, between Ben and Arden over the coming months. Over the last week, I have been really enjoying reading your many responses to our user survey, uh, including a lot of commentary about this show. We are busy evaluating how the last 12 months at 80,000 hours have gone, uh, but don't worry, uh, we've still got some new normal episodes in the pipeline for you, uh, including an interview with Hilary Graves uh, and another with Russ Roberts. If you'd like further reading on the topics in this episode, uh, you could check out our recent article on misconceptions about effective altruism, uh, or Will McCaskill's recent paper, The Definition of Effective Altruism, uh, both of which we'll link to in the show notes. And if you'd like to hear from Tyler Cowan himself uh, about his views, I suggest checking out episode number 45, Tyler Cowan's Stubborn Attachments to Maximizing Economic Growth, Making Civilization More Stable, and Respecting Human Rights. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell, Full transcripts are available on our site and made by Zachy Olhack. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.